Where's your father? Where's your father? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. His son goes to the bathroom and returns. His dad had vanished. The father of two mysteriously disappeared. Their dad is missing. And he seems to have simply vanished without a trace. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and scour to bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. On the air, the internet, podcasts, of course, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. These boys greet their dad as though they are genuinely glad to see him, as though they had really missed, they really missed being away from him. For many of us growing up, Our dad is just, you know, our dad. The guy who takes care of things and tells you to clean your room. Maybe he lets you swing from his bicep or teaches you how to make mustacholi. He's just, you know, dad. Then one day, when you're a little older, you realize that your dad is, in fact, an actual person with dreams, regrets, successes, and failings. In short, someone not unlike yourself. He may even be an interesting person you would like to actually get to know. Today on ReSound, we bring you two stories of dads who are, for one reason or another, starting to slip away, and the sons who are desperately trying to stay connected. Stay with us. Journalist Greg O'Brien is in a very difficult but unique position. Diagnosed with early Alzheimer's, his memory is faulty. But while part of him is inevitably slipping, another part of him, the reporter, has gone into serious overdrive to try and understand and document what's been going on inside his head since his late 50s. Producer Leah Tao tells his story in Mind Shaft. Driving home from Boston, had a meeting, I do a lot of work in Boston, to Cape Cod, and I didn't know where I was. That's a road Greg has driven so many times, he says he could do it blindfolded. I had no freaking clue. It wasn't until close to 2 o'clock in the morning I realized where I was. I was outside Providence, Rhode Island, about an hour and 45 minutes, two hours from Cape Cod in the total wrong direction. And I had just kept driving. Even now at 64, Greg is so athletic and handsome that he seems like the embodiment of health. He has the toned legs of a runner, and he has so few wrinkles it could make a much younger man jealous. And his silver mane only adds, you know, an air of distinction to his already considerable charms. But not all is well with Greg. I don't trust my head anymore. It used to be my best friend, and I don't see a chance for reconciliation now. Craig has been a writer and thinker all his life, and he's extremely eloquent with a knack for the poetic. It's hard to grasp that a man who can express himself so beautifully is the same man who minutes later will demonstrate why he no longer trusts his brain as he goes to give me a copy of the book he recently published and sign it for me. I got a book for you, so... Oh, really? do that before I forget. Okay. Forgetting a lot these days. There you go. Oh, thank you. All right. So, um, you know, I can't spell names, any, and I'm freaking embarrassed about it. So I have to, and I invert letters. So just spell your name for me. Okay. L. E. E. A. A. That's it. 
All right. What is the, I forget the date. Um, it's the 19th, I okay. think. Okay. What day of the week it is? Done? Friday. Friday, okay. Let's see. Keep the faith. Walk in hope. Don't forget me. Greg knows that he will forget me. That my visit and our entire interview will fade from his memory, perhaps within hours after we're done. But he's fighting tooth and nail to tell his story while he still can. So he wrote a book about his struggle with early onset Alzheimer's. I'm a reporter, he says, embedded inside the mind of Alzheimer's. And it's that dual perspective that drew me to Greg and his story. He's the victim of a darkness that is gaining terrain on him every day. And at the same time, he's an astute observer of his own decline, and he's able to describe it with precision and poetry. It's confusing when you meet him because the gap between what the writer and observer is capable of and what the man himself cannot manage at times is so wide. There was a time when um, I was in the office and I had my laptop and a cup of coffee, and I knew I had to go into the house and I had to microwave my coffee and I had to print something out of my laptop. Well, my brain told me that you put the laptop in the microwave and you connect the printer to the coffee cup. Greg went so far as to put the laptop inside the microwave, but he realized his mistake just before he had start and fried his computer. In other moments, he hasn't caught himself in time. I've had to label the toothpaste and the mouthwash because I've grabbed for the wrong things and you know, there was one time where I gargled with rubbing alcohol. It says rubbing alcohol, but my brain said it was mouthwash, and I wouldn't recommend that for anyone. Sometimes Greg gets utterly frustrated with himself when he forgets how to operate the most ordinary things. What the fuck? You, it's a phone, dumbass. You don't know how to use it? No, I don't. I, 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 my mind is... And, and then you get so damn angry that you hurl it across the room, you know, which I did right into the sink. So how is it possible that in one moment, Greg is gargling with rubbing alcohol, and the next he's writing a 200-page book and talking to you like any other smart person you know? He describes his clicking in and out like this. If you think of yourself in your living room and you're very excited to sit down at night and read a great book and the light starts to blink. It's a loose plug in a socket and you get up and you push the plug back in and then it starts to blink again. Then the plug becomes so loose it falls out and you put the plug back in. Finally, the plug is so loose you can't put it back in the socket and the light goes dead. Greg had a terrifyingly clear idea of the path he was on as soon as he got his diagnosis, because he'd watched his mother die of Alzheimer's. And it was like watching someone holding on a dock on an outgoing tide who just let go. And I watched her drift. It is a death in slow motion. It is a race that I won't win. But I refuse to stop running because I don't know what else to do.
Craig literally runs several miles every day, but he's recently had to switch from running on the road to the treadmill for fear that he'll get lost. He runs in the evening, which is when the socket in his mind gets the most loose, almost as if the darkness of dusk infests his brain, and he fights to stay plugged in by increasing blood flow through exercise. Seeing him run is like watching him try to outpace the disease in the most literal way. But the race is on in other ways, too. Against time, which is not on his side. Towards trying to report and share as much as he can before the plug falls out for good. And also to keep making money before he can no longer provide for his wife and the three kids that they recently finished putting through college. The thing is, I stop working, this family falls apart. I have $200,000 in college debt. I got to find a way to figure it out. And can I do what I did before? No. But all my clients, many of my clients I've had for 15, 20 years, they're all standing behind me. And they're all giving me work, knowing what I can do and what I can't do. So that's pretty cool. They could have walked away and they didn't. And that says something for them. The O'Briens live on a beautiful property surrounded by trees in Brewster on Cape Cod. And they know they'll lose the house where they raise their kids when Greg can no longer earn a living. So he works 40 hours a week at his consulting job, plus many long hours promoting his book, giving talks, giving interviews to people like me. And it's a constant balancing act. While you're doing that, I'm just seeing if anyone is trying to get a hold of me. I have to check my email at all times. I didn't realize you still worked full-time in addition to being a book writer. I mean, that would be challenging for most people. Well, I, I um... Here, let me just, um... Sure, sure. I'll um, totally let you do that. Greg's schedule would be exhausting for anyone. And the question is, how does he do it? First of all, practically, how does he type emails, not to mention write a book, when he was just struggling to find the three letters in my first name? I don't, if you said, Greg, where's H? Right now, I'm thinking, I don't know what finger I'd tell you I'd hit. But if, I, if my hands are on that keyboard, I know. Hmm. And I can't explain that. But it's working for me. There's a motor thing that goes on, I guess. They call it muscle memory. Greg also has the help of his youngest son, Connor, who at 26 has moved home to support his dad. He drives him around because Greg is no longer allowed to drive. And he travels with him to his appearances, helps him navigate crowds, which tend to overwhelm Greg, and he handles many day-to-day -day things for his dad. But Connor admits that it's not always easy. I'll hear him go in a rage and scream to himself, and I'll come out to the office and say, Dad, what's wrong? And he says, nothing, nothing. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he just brushes me off. Well, Dad, you just cursed and screamed at yourself, so everything's not okay. Why don't you tell me what's wrong? And he, he just, he won't. And that frustrates me. I remember asking him, his phone was cracked. And I said, Dad, what happened? He said, oh, I dropped it. And then I find out that it was because he didn't know how to dial the phone and threw it against the wall. So that's like the type of thing that I'm talking about. He doesn't open up to me enough to tell me stories like that. So I have to find it out either through the book or through his speeches, which drives me crazy. But that's the fight in him. That's that's what makes him really strong and... um what am I going to do? I asked Connor if he told his dad how it frustrates him, and he said, yeah, but it's just who my dad is. 
Then I asked Greg why he wasn't more open about his struggles. I hate pity, and, you know, as a typical Irish ass male, and I know it's a cliche, but never let him see you sweat. Never let him see you sweat. Why? You know what Connor said? He said, I wish that he would tell me more what goes on inside of him. Why not be more open? You're open with strangers. You're open in your book. You're open with the world in telling your story. Why hold back with your family? Alzheimer's is like a, um, a mine that's five miles deep. I'm only comfortable taking people three miles down. The rest is just dark and scary, so I don't go deeper into the mine shaft with them. I don't want to do that to them. I asked Greg if he would take me into some of the dark things he goes through. I woke up, I'm wide awake, and I noticed a bird had gotten in. So I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get this bird out. And then I noticed the bird going around in circles, around in circles, around in circles, tighter, tighter circles. And then it dive bomb to my heart, hit my chest. And then I realized it wasn't real. Hallucinations like that are common for people with Alzheimer's and are almost always scary. It could be 9 o'clock in the morning, and there's like a platoon of spiders walking across the ceiling. At times, some of them can have blood on them, and then they float, and then they start coming toward me. Some of Greg's struggles are not imaginary, but far too real. There'll be times when, and this is embarrassing to say, but I can be speaking with people or solving a problem, and while I'm doing that, I've lost continents. The one particular time in Boston, I was very upset because I'm a writer, but also a communication um, consultant and just dealing with some law firm in Boston on some issues, beautiful overlooking Boston Harbor, and not the kind of place where you want to lose your control of yourself. I began to understand why Greg had a desire to shield his family from some of the more disturbing things about the disease. It wasn't just macho bravado, it seemed to me, but also a genuine desire not to alarm them, you know, to spare them some of the pain by suffering in silence. And Greg did emphasize how glad he was to have Connor around all the time, how nice it was when his son came out to check if he was okay, even when Greg was embarrassed and brushed him off. I felt for both of them. Many people consider dementia one of the worst ways to go. We'd rather die of a heart attack and be gone in a flash than put ourselves and our families through the gradual, painful, embarrassing ordeal of losing our minds. But Greg says there are some advantages to knowing that you're on your way out before you're fully gone. When you strip yourself naked and you stand in front of a mirror and you see things in your life that you don't like, But now you have the opportunity at least to try to fix them or fix some of them. Like what? What are the things that you want to fix? Well, you know, in my own judgment, I'm about as imperfect as a human being there can be. 
I probably committed every sin in life other than the major, major ones. I become more open to other individuals, whereas before, I just focused on me, kind of. You know, I'd pretend that I, that really wasn't the case, but I was, you know, just this um, selfish guy in a lot of ways that was uh, chasing the brass ring, in this case, in, in my career, in newspapering or journalism, and that was kind of masking some of the things I needed to fix in my life in terms of being a better person, a better father, a better husband. And I can't turn the clock back, nor can I become perfect, but I can try harder, so I'm trying harder now. There are three O'Brien kids, no grandkids yet. There's the oldest boy, Brendan, who's 30, a middle daughter, Colleen, who just got married, and of course, Connor, the youngest kid who's living at home to help his dad. I think he opens up more to Brendan, my older brother, than to me. Far more, actually. So, um, Why do you think you're the baby? <laughs> that, might, that might be true. It doesn't seem quite fair, considering that you're the one spending all this time with him. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, it's good. We've had a lot of good talks. You know, we're on the road a lot, and I really enjoy it, and I think he does too. And it's good. I'm I'm really happy. I'm I'm really enjoying spending this time with him. So, you know, it's brought our whole family closer, and it's brought me and my dad closer. I've never been with him this much uh, in years, and I really enjoy it. So there is a silver lining in this gradual decline a chance that victims of heart attack or lightning strike don't have to right some wrongs and maximize the time together. But the O'Briens know that the sand is pouring through the hourglass at a terrifying pace. He had a speech in New York last week, and he he told another story that I didn't know about. He was at a Dunkin' Donuts, and my mom came in, and my dad didn't recognize her. And that scares the crap out of me. I was there riding, and my wife showed up. I didn't know who she was. She's a very beautiful woman, so I'm attracted to beautiful women. So bad dog that I am right away. I look at a beautiful, I had shallow, but I'm a shallow guy, shallow Irishman. And I said, well, this is a person of interest. I kind of know her. And I'm saying, okay, who is it? And I'm trying to go through the files of my freaking brain. You know, the roll of deaths, flip, 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 looking for the name, flip, 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 flip. Oh, okay, it's Mary Catherine. Also known as my wife. My wife, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. When the identity of someone standing right in front of him continues to escape Greg, he says he uses his training as a reporter to find the missing information. When I was a young reporter, investigative reporter at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix, my first assignment was covering the court beat, Maricopa County Superior Court. And I I didn't know anything about the courts. It was a woman judge and I was covering her court. And it was Sandra Day O'Connor. She broke me in on court reporting. And she would always tell me as a reporter, Greg, keep asking questions. Keep asking questions until you get the answers. And I use that in my life today. Greg's investigative technique is so good that he can usually figure out who the other person is without giving away that he didn't know. But he admits that it's exhausting to live this way. It's a 24-7 fight, Leah. 
strategies for getting lost in familiar places, not understanding people, strategies for hallucinations, strategies for not understanding distances anymore. You lose your filter. You know, you, you become more childlike. You're more given to potty talk. It's actually kind of fun, but I have to watch myself. Your priest would not be happy? No, no, I know, would not be. So I have to watch myself there. You can't give up. You are freaking exhausted, but you can never leave the fight because if you do, you're drifting. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. There are days when I'm tired of fighting. I, I just am. This fucking sucks. There are times I go out of my boat on Pleasant Bay and think maybe I'm not going to come back. I'll choose not to come back. And then right now I realize that I have to, and I Why? do. Because I, have, I feel there's more for me to do. It's not the time. And there's more for me to do as a husband and father and whatever else purpose I'm supposed to have. But if I lose my writing, that's the essence of who I am, and I'm scared shitless about that. I'm really scared about the day I wake up and I can't, the, the keyboard isn't moving for me. That may be the day I go back on my boat, even though I know I'm not supposed to and not come back. Are you afraid to die? No. You know, it's not my place to proselytize, but I have a deep faith. I um, believe I'm going to a better place. You know, I also have prostate cancer, and uh, I've made the decision not to treat it. And I've talked to my family about it because uh, I don't want them to see me in a nursing home in the final stages of Alzheimer's. So that's my exit strategy. At this point, Greg's oldest son, Brendan, had driven down from Boston with his girlfriend to see his dad. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you good to see you. Good. good. Hey, I'm Brendan. Hey, Amelia. Hey, so nice to meet you. How are you? Good, good. How much longer do you guys have in here? Probably a little bit, and then you want to interview Brendan? I'm not really in the mood for it today. Can you give her five minutes? Because it 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 would be. She's trying to do a good job on this, and and. All right, we just we came down here to come see you. Yeah, I know, no, but if you don't want to, it's fine. Yeah, it's good. Do fine. Connor did. All right, well then, if you promise me that we'll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I promise you. When we're done here, I'm done. So. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I found myself trying to balance Brendan's desire not to participate with his dad's desire that he should, and I didn't know what to do. I really didn't want to take Brendan's time, but it turned out it wasn't his own time he was concerned about. I'm trying to get him to sort of understand that he's got to yeah. kind of start to take a step back a little bit and slow down, and uh, so that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of like, come on, Dad, like let's just let's take it easy, have a family night, and so... Yeah, yeah, I totally so, get I apologize, it. apologize, but... No, no, yeah. you're looking after him. You should be. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't even know how much had been going on, but it does sound like it's been kind of insane, and probably he's enjoying it to get this attention for his book, but you yeah. also got to, yeah, like, watch it, right? He's in, I think he's enjoying it, but I think it, it's really taking a toll on him, so he hides it really well, but I think, you know, really starting to wear him down, so... Yeah. You know, it's it's not like your typical book promotion where the author can just sort of just dedicate all their time to it. You know, he's still got bills to pay and he works for himself. So he's got to, you know, still has to work. And um, 
right now the books, it's just sort of like a side project, but it's a 50 hour a week side project. And then it's working another 60 hours. You know, it's just, it's crazy. So. And then does he get worse when he gets tired? Is that one of your concerns? Yeah. Yeah. So go, 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 go for four or five days. And then it's like a, just a steep drop off where he just needs to like go away for a while, you know, and just check, check out for a little while. And, I think if we can get him to conserve some of the energy a little bit, it won't be as much of a pendulum of a, you know, it'll be more hopefully leveled out, but he had such a rough week. I I didn't know that. I'm sorry that he had a rough week. Is it your mom who calls you and says he's had a hard week or can you you figure that out? Oh, I know. I can just, because I talk to him every day. Uh, I mean, I'm helping him with a lot of the stuff that he's doing with the book and promoting it and stuff like that. So we're in close contact and it's apparent, you know, and, and he'll admit it, you know. He told me, you know, it was last night. He was just having a bad week. and so, so Sad. Yeah, sucks. I know. Yeah. Sucks. Yeah. It just fucking sucks. Yeah. But. Now I'm really sure to think about, like, the actual real reality of the future, which is scary as shit, is, you know, he'll never meet my kids. You know, he's barely got to know my girlfriend. You know, it's like, so just... The reality of that starting to set in, which just sucks. But, so. I think that's about all I got. Is that okay? That's okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, right. totally. Appreciate it. Thanks right. so much for taking the time. Yeah. Normally, like, I'm all about doing this stuff. It was just like, I'm, I travel a lot with work, and it's hard. I can't get down here. That's, I don't know if I'll, next time I'll see him after this weekend, you know, so... It's kind of like we try to just make the most of it when we get it, when we get the time. So I really just want to go sit sit down on a porch with him and just relax. So I hear you. Um, I apologize. It no, was so okay. short. I wanted to just get out of there and let the family get on with their Friday night. But when I told Greg about my concern, he wanted to comment on this question of pacing himself. I can't coast. My brain is not that way. I got to rev it up. And uh, because I find if I'm not pushing forward, Leah, and I've tried it, I'm falling backwards. Because Greg had been so on, so eloquent, so clear, so charming during our interview, I hadn't quite understood just how much effort it had been for him. This kicked my ass, but that's okay. It's more important that I tell the story of Alzheimer's and worry about getting my ass kicked. But this, an interview like that kicks my ass. And this is why your son is concerned about you, Brendan. That's why he said, okay, enough soon. And they want to they spend well, they're, time they're, with Well, they're you. trying to put walls of protection around me now. And, and maybe they should. Because they're, they're seeing some more progression. So this week I had my doctor and three good friends saying, Greg, I'm noticing more stuff. You got to take care of yourself. And that means slowing down? I, you know, I don't know, because if I slow down, I'm afraid to. I'm not sure. So I just yes them to death, because they don't understand. That's, they don't understand. And that's the loneliness of Alzheimer's. So you just press on. Mind Shaft was produced by Leah Tao for her podcast, Strangers, from KCRW. 
For a link to Leah's podcast, plus more information on Greg and his book, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, a Swedish man follows in his father's footsteps and tire tracks. Stay with us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. On today's show, stories about dads disappearing. Martin Janssen has three postcards from his father. They arrived in the mail at Martin's home in Sweden when he was just 16. His father, who left Martin and his siblings, went cycling around the coast of Ireland on a red Ferrari bike. As a young man, Martin decided to take those brief postcards and try and retrace his father's journey, the places he went, the people he met, to try and better understand who he was, why he disappeared, and why he's been disappearing ever since. Here is My Father Takes a Vacation. It's the week before Christmas, and I'm standing in a public library in Stockholm, Sweden, and I'm asking the librarian for books about Ireland. You can, you can help me to get some books about Ireland. About Ireland? Yes. I've never been there, only seen pictures of green hills and heard some folk music. I'm going there in February, so the books I'm looking for are for information. McCarthy's Bar, the funniest book I've ever read this year. My father, he lives in New Zealand. He's the only one I know who has done more than getting drunk in the bars of Dublin. He traveled to Ireland on a Ferrari red bike six years ago. I couldn't come with him. He wanted to be alone. That's why I'm traveling there now, to see what he wanted to see. Hey, Amanda. <laughs> I took the subway to my friend Amanda. I brought the books I found to show her where I'm going. A Journey of Discovery in Ireland. By Pete McCarthy. And it's called McCarthy's Bar. There you have a bar. I guess that's he, Pete. Yeah. And there you have a nun. Yeah, and, and there's... <laughs> is she drinking beer? She's drinking beer, is isn't she? Drinking, she? I have to... 
Never pass a bar that has your name on it, says the eighth rule of travel. A very rewarding rule if your name is McCarthy and you're wandering through the west of Ireland. <laughs> a lot of younger people say that Ireland is you two and the cranberries and yeah, rain, the weather. rain and the rain. Mm. I also have some kind of feeling that the family is quite important. How come? I don't know. I just have this feeling that... Maybe that you spend more time together. I guess that people go together to church on Sundays. I think that is a very naive view of people, <laughs> don't you? I don't know. I think it's nice. I hope it's. I hope they have strong that, families. Yeah, but, but you know, probably how they think about us. Like we walk around naked all the time, and we have lots ever, of sex. And have lots of sex. Isn't that true? <laughs> Hey, the Martin. Hey, Martin. He's always biked a lot, my father. In Scotland, Denmark, Holland, and so on. But this was different. He made the trip two years after his wife, my mother, had died in cancer. He was gone for a month during the summer. I was 16, my sister 13, and my older brother 18. We spent the summer with our grandmother on an island in the Baltic Sea. I sold ice cream to tourists on the beach, trying not to think of my father. I was always kind of love with my father, you know. Um, I always liked to come along with him doing stuff or fix with a boat or anything. And I always had this idea that if, if he was alone, he would be really sad. My father has a photo album from his travels where he has listed all the places he went to. First he took the ferry to Newcastle, then the train to Holyhead. There he took the ferry to Dublin. It says that Dublin is, is, a, uh, is a town filled of garbage. Mm, I think so. He wasn't too fond of that city. And there is a lot of... Uh, you call that pollution? But he tells me that I should visit the university library in Dublin to see all the handwritten books that they keep there, to get a feeling of knowledge before the discovery of printing. It's not a beautiful city, but it's alive. My father has a library himself, an entire room filled with books, almost two bookshelves of travelling stories. I used to love them as a child. He only cycled on small roads going through Wicklow Mountains, Glendalough and Wexford. I should visit that town, he says. And then he went to a town, he said I should visit Wexford. And they have a really big difference between the high and the low tide. Mm -hmm. And so it's so probably looking beautiful, you know, when the water is gone. Mm -hmm. I wonder what happens with the boats. I guess they get stuck on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, but, I mean, it's a boat, it should like, the boat. Yeah, maybe it does. Yeah, there are a lot of large houses that live in the water. They have a little hamn with a lot of water. And it rains and the sun shines. It's a island. He says that it's a town filled with small houses with one or two floors. It lies next to the ocean with a small harbor. And when it's not raining, the sun is shining. 
Like all places in Ireland, there is nothing in between. He then cycled on to the hook. He says that I should go there and look at the old lighthouse. Hook, it's hook. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's supposed to be at, at Waterford. I don't. This map is so is very big. It sounds like a lonely place, a little lighthouse. Oh, yeah. What did you do there? I think he just went to the lighthouse to see the lighthouse. He just looked at the lighthouse. During the month he was gone, I used to receive postcards from Ireland picturing small towns and standardized landscapes. They said, all is well. I tore all of them apart. To Ireland by the hook and the crook. The syftar på de två näs som överlappande skyddar infarten till Waterford, den gamla hamnstaden grundade vikingarna på 800-talet. He tells me about an old sailing description. To Ireland by the hook or by crook meaning the way into Waterford, the old harbour town founded by the Vikings. After that, he went out to an island called Dersey Island, which he could reach by a cable car. It could hold one cow, eight sheep or six people. The cattle was prioritised. The island itself is only six and a half kilometres long and had 16 inhabitants. When he got there, he was like he was on his way back, and it's only so small, so he walked across and back. It was like his turning point, probably. Imagine living on that island. Mm. Sixteen people. Yeah, sixteen people. Imagine living there a whole life. No, because he probably stood on the tip of mm. the island. And, okay, and, and he, he looked had, at the sea. Yeah, and he had to turn back, you know. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he wanted to. Or if he just wanted to continue onwards, never turning back. Three years later, he emigrated to New Zealand with his Ferrari red bike. Me, my sister and brother were left behind. My father again. I asked him what he thought about when he was on his bike there on the small roads. I thought about what was behind the next corner, he says. If it was going to rain more, or if it was enough with three rain showers in one day. And when it was uphill... I thought about which way the wind was coming from. After those thoughts, he thought about the loss of my mother, how unfair he believed it was. Tänkte aldrig att att det skulle varit att att vi hade velat att du hade varit hemma så där. Ja. Jag blev lite tid borta från er också, vet du. Ja. Det var ju bara jag och ni. I ask him if we never thought about that we needed him at home and he answers that he needed to get away from us for a while, to be alone, to be able to continue. 
I look I, I look identical to my father. I'm like a physical reincarnation of my father. <laughs> he's uh, if I if I look at pictures and see that when he's like twenty when he's twenty two as I am, there's no difference at all. He's a little bit taller, but physically we're the same. No, if you if you if you picture that for yourself, like you've been married to somebody, you know, we've known somebody for twenty five years, who dies in front of your eyes, and cancer, and uh, you don't know how how things work. Like the entire world is upside down, and you decide to bike on Ireland alone, <laughs> along the coast. I mean, that is, I mean, wonder what he found. Jag vet bara att jag var väldigt stor behov av att ha lite paus från alla vardagssysslor och vardagsansvar. Ungefär som du har haft ett jullov nu. We all need to get away sometimes, just as you did when you had Christmas holiday. You got away from work. Alltså, det är ju lite skillnad på att vara en pappa och ta ett jullov. I say that there is a big difference in being a father and taking a vacation. He says everybody needs a break sometimes. I just had the same thought that I wondered what he found on Ireland that made him want to continue to get away. Yeah, that's one way to put it. But maybe he found something there that made him to continue to want to still disappear. Maybe he found something that that uh, we couldn't give him. Twentieth of February, Dublin, Ireland. I'm standing outside Trinity College, uh, in the old library. I'm here to look at the books my father was talking about. As far as I can remember, my father has always had a library. All the new homes we moved into, a room or the living room, would be filled with white IKEA bookshelves. Before my mother died, I had lived in five different places, ranging from Australia to a small island in the Baltic Sea. We never spent more than three years in one place. Now, eight years later, at the age of 22, I've still never spent more than three years in one place. <laughs> So this is where my father was six years ago. When he arrived in Dublin, he went here. And he leaned over the glass mountains like the other people are doing here right now. In my father's library, the novels were put in alphabetical order, 
the travel literature on two bookshelves, the historical books on another. When I was 11, I had an idea that I would read all the books from A to Z. I managed to get to C. It has been calculated that the books of Kells in its original state used the skin of around 185 cows. Some leaves were disfigured by sizable holes created in the flaying of the pelt. You had to be careful when reading his books. You were not allowed to have any grease on your fingers, and you were never allowed to fold pages so you knew where you were. There are actual vacuum cleaning the books. And there's a note saying, silence, reading room, and... As a child, I was promised that everything was possible, just as long as you wanted it badly enough. It's probably 30 meters to the roof. And along the long hall, there are statues of men. That promise means that you have to sacrifice things. I've done that, lost friends because of work, getting so absorbed that I forget them. The same way my father has done when pursuing his career. Twenty-second of February. I take the train to Wexford from Dublin. Um, can, can you describe him physically, you know, what height was he and so on? In Wexford, my father stayed in a hostel called the Kirwan House. He actually looks identical to me, but uh, older and... and um, right. And, um, yeah, a, a little bit longer, but mm. physically we actually mm. look the same. Mm. Mm. The, the bike was Ferrari red. He probably had a couple of bags on the bike. Yes. A helmet. Um, he had a uh, yellow uh, yellow jacket, mm-hmm. yellow wind jacket. Mm-hmm. Does anything ring a bell? Yellow jacket, maybe. Um, I do recall meeting a lot of people from Europe that year, you know, Holland, Sweden. I'm just trying to place him. You know... Um, there was another, there was an older man, uh, uh, quite an old man. He's he's nearly 90 now, working here at the time, um, just during the day meeting people. And he's still living in Wexford. His name is Eamon. So I don't know, well, I don't know what his memory will be like now or, or if he could remember anything. Could we, like, phone him or something? His, his house is it's, it's about two streets over from here. Looking for Eamon, I pass one of the many churches I've seen in town. Next to it, on a parking space, Jesus is hanging on his cross in between all the cars. Something that I have never seen in Sweden, so I take a couple of pictures. Have you been in Ireland very long? No, this is the first time I'm here, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, if you, I don't know what uh, Swedish radio would be like, you know, but... Eamon has got three radios on when I enter his house. He turns them off, one by one. So how long have you lived in Wexford? Oh, it's been about, uh, say about 10 years. Often, I'm not, not exactly sure, but... Originally from around Drogheda. I just thought I'd like this area better because the climate is better, for yeah. one thing. Why were you at Kirwanas? 
Oh, me? Uh, well, I, when I first came to Wexford, I was uh, looking for a place to stay, and I, was, I just went there and rented a, a bed, you know, and stayed there a couple of weeks. And then uh, I had several languages, you know, I have Spanish and, and French and a little bit of German. And so, and uh, then when the owner came back, he asked me if I'd like a job, and uh, I said I would. And so, so many different people came through the hostel, and sometimes I'd become quite friendly with some of them, and we'd have a cup of tea out at the table, and you know, we'd talk and all. And uh, after, you know, after a while, uh, you'd almost consider them friends. And a couple of years later, you would have completely forgotten them, you know, and it's unfortunate that we don't remember better, but um, see, have a look at you and see if you remember. Uh, and he was traveling on his own, right? He would, yeah. yeah. You know, at the moment, I can't play some... Uh, But there was was there a lot of lonely people traveling? Uh, well, when you say lonely, now do you mean people who are traveling alone on their own, or, or people who were uh, simply uh, didn't have any friends or found it hard to make friends? Because I would say lonely people would be uh, largely uh, people who uh, you know didn't just weren't able to relate to other people. But lone, if it's just lone, just traveling on their own, traveling alone, well, there would be a lot of them, yeah. Uh, you haven't heard from him at all, right? Well, yeah, I have. No. Uh, um, mm. he, he lives in New Zealand now. Oh, yeah, okay, well, that's good. I th- yeah, I've heard it's a wonderful country, you know. Is he an adventurous fellow? <laughs> or it may just be to, for the adventure of it, you know? Yeah, he is actually yeah, adventurous. Yeah. He likes mm-hmm. climbing mountains. He likes biking. Oh yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But is and now do you, do you have brothers and sisters or not? Yeah, I have a little sister and a big brother. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, he did have a family. It is kind of surprising that he would um, just go out on his own. <laughs> have you ever gone gone alone like that on a trip? No, I don't think I have really. <laughs> you know, I I wasn't. I haven't done any biking to speak of, you know. When I was younger, I'd b- bike around the houses, you know, around the neighborhood. But not, um, I haven't uh, taken any uh, from one town to another. I haven't done that. Twenty-third of February. The day after, I leave for Waterford to continue on for Dunmore East. As I sit and watch the same landscape that my father passed by, it feels like I'm rushing after him. He traveled here on a bike at a much slower speed. I can't see much through the window. I can't even smell the landscape, just the air conditioning from the bus. Dennis? Are you looking for Dennis? Yeah, Dennis. Yes, people. Here, Dennis. Oh. Dunmore East. From the pier through the rain, 
you can see the hook. Dennis Harding is changing the cables which he uses for the nets. 500 meters of cable go on the boat. They last for about 15 months and then they put on new ones. His three Lithuanian fishermen that work on the boat are watching the cable as it goes on board, making sure that nothing goes wrong. Very few Irish uh, fishermen anymore now. Well, in this port anyway, they want them. Um, most of them went on the buildings. They can earn as much on the buildings as they can fishing and have more time off. So, what do you think about that? Well, I still like the job. But a lot of people probably don't. We have to put in a lot of hours, you know, and a lot of hardship. We're away from home a lot, so. How long are you away for? We're at sea for ten or eleven days, non-stop. How is it to leave your family that long? Well, when you're younger it doesn't seem to be as bad, I don't know, but as you get a bit older then it seems to be, um, we don't seem to want to do it as much, but we keep in touch, we, we have um, we have radios in the house and that and we keep in touch constantly, you know, and we have a laptop, a computer there that we can send emails and so it's a little bit okay that way. Would you come down tomorrow for your money? Tomorrow? Yeah. Tomorrow? No, no, be four o'clock. Four? Yeah. You, you stay in bed tomorrow. <laughs> stay beside your wife. Alright? You ring me, okay? I ring you, yeah. Okay, nurse. Okay, Alexander. Goodbye. How come they're all from the tower? Lithuania. Well, they they seem there's a lot of um, Eastern Europeans coming to Ireland to work. The, the money is good compared with their money, so it pays them to come here to work. Their wages would be about five hundred pound a month at home. You know. But what do you actually think about when you're out on the boat like that? Think about the catch we're going to get. Have all, all sorts of things go through your head. How are they at home? Is everybody okay? And you know, a lot of things go through your mind. But they must feel it as well. They're leaving their loved ones at home for three months. I only I only do it for five days, six days. When they go home to Lithuania, and they leave to come back here, it must be very sad to say I'll be I'll be away for three months. But we, we would always think about the people at home, how they're, how they're thinking of us and try to get word into them that we're okay and everything is good and, and mostly of what's going to come in in the catch, you know, that we're making money, that we're not wasting our time out here. You really get excited when you see a lot of fish or a lot of prawns. That gives you a great buzz. How long do you think you'll continue fishing? I don't know, I'm 64 years of age now, so another 30 years probably. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully I'll get another five years. You see, you think five years is, is a small amount of time, but when you're 64 years of age, maybe maybe I won't be able to do it in five years' time. I don't know. I keep going till I, till I think I have to stop, then I, I stop. But how does it feel to... I, I noticed you had a memorial wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for all people lost at sea. 
when you see a lot of the names of some of the fishermen that you fished beside and you knew, you'd always say a little prayer, you know, when you pass. Dennis is driving me back into Waterford, where I'm staying for the night. All the buses have stopped, and it's dark outside. You see the hook flashing there now? You see the light? That's a landmark there now. When we see that, we're home. And when we see it going out, we have another five days to do. <laughs> 24th of February. Walking the day after in Castletown Beer. I find, to my surprise, the same McCarthy's bar that was on the cover of the book I borrowed in Sweden. The author of the book claimed this to be one of the best pubs in the world. Half of it is a pub, the other half a store. I'm meeting another Dennis here the owner of a bed and breakfast who is going to take me out to Dersey Island tomorrow. But you, uh, you actually met McCarthy, didn't you? Yes, he stayed, he stayed with me in our guest house oh, once. But from reading his book, he showed really, you know, if I was to explain those people, and I know them along, you know, over many years, and he's quick just meeting them, he could describe them more so than I could and I'd know those people over a long number of years so I think he was very sharp but um, he, he developed cancer and he's deceased now two, just over two and a half years My father was in this pub and bought supplies before going on to Dersey Island he probably didn't meet Dennis a man whose story is similar to his 30 years ago I came here to cast on beer I came in through the fishing, and uh, I, like every young, I met this person. It was at a wedding, our sister's wedding, who married a chap who fished with me on the same boat. She was the bridesmaid that day, so, and um, she had long hair, hair you know, unusual long hair. You don't see many young girls today. It was a foot and a half long, which was unusual that day. Um, that was an unfortunate How would how how would you describe her? She was uh, very precise, and precise meaning clean. Um, to, uh, to the, to everything had to be near perfect. A very kind of perfect person. To me, I would. I know if she could come back today, she would take me home by the ear and say, you know, look at this, look at that. Very. I suppose that was one of the things I didn't have and I admired in her so much. Five, or, uh, five years left, October, to last October, it was to take she had cancer. And she, she got a year and a half through her illness and she passed away four years from this March. She's buried in, in, in her home graveyard, which would be in Cahar which would be... Uh, a part of the, 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 where the doors of people would be buried. So that was her wish to go back there. Her mother is buried and father are buried in the same graveyard. 
She was proud of it, very proud of Dorothy, being a person from Dorothy. Um, how did how did your children react? Well, I suppose it was only a month before she did pass away that I, I had to sit him down one night and, and, and tell him without she being in the present because she could not tell him. It was a it was a hard moment, but I had to tell them. I had you know, as a father, you try to protect your children as much as you could, like you know. So, but then again, she was their mother. You can't replace that, you know. It was, you know but it took a long time, you know. But children, for them, they're going to go on and they're going to go into college and meet someone or whatever. But your mother, yes, you'll miss her. But as a husband and wife, you know, it's a loss that you'll never, you'll never go away from me. But don't you ever feel like running away? Ah, well, I suppose I know I'm woods at times, but you know your responsibilities. If you, on the day they're born, until, I suppose on the day you die, they'll still be your children. They'll, you know, you'll try to do the best for what you can do for them. Times, yes, you would love to run away. There's, I suppose in every job, if you're in it, you know, there's often you say, you know, I'd love to be out of here. But thank you. Not everyone had that choice. Later that night, borrowing a copy of the book from Dennis, I find myself laughing at all the jokes, realizing suddenly that the man is dead, though he's still alive on the page. I fall asleep wondering if he knew that he was going to die when writing the book, if the cancer had shown any sign of eating him alive, just as it did to Dennis' wife and my mother. See that, see that idle hood? You just you see a little rock sticking up. There was no lighthouse on that. And um, it, was, it was 18, is it around 1830? That it was blown down. And the, 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 all, all the, 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 cha- the lightkeepers were marooned on it. This is the chap who, who, who will put you across now. He must be down below. Hello, hello, how are you? Hi. Do you want to go in now? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Do you know if there's anybody on the island now? Very few. There's one man there in the first village, but maybe yeah. he will speak to you, maybe not. I could see how it goes. Yeah, thanks. The cable car rocks back and forth, swaying 50 meters over the ocean, and I find a prayer on the wall. Read every day for protection. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains on the protection of the Almighty, can say to him, you are my defender and protector. You are my God and you I trust. He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from all deadly diseases. A thousand may fall be dead beside you, ten thousand all around you, but you will not be harmed.
what, what are you doing here? Me? Yeah. I am farming. You're farming here? Yeah. Are you born here in Dorsey? I was born in Dorsey, 55. And I went to school here in Dorsey. That's the school up there in the mountain, look. Oh. So how was it to go in school in Dorsey Island? Oh, there was a big population here in Dorsey Island. There must be about 60 there. In the island at that time. How many are there now? I suppose there's six or seven full time now. What? So what's happened since then? Well, if the old people died and the young when the young people went off to, they got married and they stayed in the mainland. So how? So how do you think that the why the seven people still living here were they permanently? Why they, why are they staying? Well, I suppose they have no other where to move into their home. And they're quite happy there. Yeah. Where they were born and reared, I suppose, to your home, and they're very happy there in at the moment. So do you think that in the end nobody will live here? Oh, I wouldn't say that. My sister built a house down the road there. You did? Yeah. There. The little yellow one? Yeah, the yellow one, yeah. Would you recommend somewhere I should what what I should see or where I should go? You should. You, if you go out to the far, oh, if you walk out to the inn there, you'll yeah. see the, and you'll see the bull rock and the cow rock and the calf rock. If you stay on the road, you'll see them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's really funny to be here because um, father he he travelled alone uh, after my mother had died. Yeah. So uh, he uh, he walked across to the tip of the island, and then he walked back. Then he went back to Sweden. So it's been a long journey, actually. It is a long journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should do the same today. You think so? Yeah. Follow your father's footsteps. It takes me forty minutes to walk to the end of the island. I pass ruins of abandoned houses and three deserted villages. This is the tip of Dursey Island. This is where my father... This was his turning point. You do actually get a feeling of wanting to continue on. You get a feeling of wanting to throw yourself in the ocean. Hej pappa, det är Martin. Du, eh, jag ville bara säga att eh, jag är på Dursey Isle och tittar ut över havet. Um... Hi dad, it's Martin. I'm standing on Dursey Island and I'm looking over the ocean. 
Jag saknar dig. Hoppas allt är bra. Hej. I miss you. Hope you're well. My Father Takes a Vacation was produced by Martin Janssen for Documentary on One from RTE in Ireland. It was adapted for Swedish radio, where it won the prestigious Prietalia Award in 2008. Martin, now a father himself, lives in Stockholm. His father is still living in New Zealand. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>